Chapter 1 The Brain Game Chess is old enough for its origins to be less than entirely clear. Most histories place the origins of the chess precursor game Chaturanga in India, sometime before the 6th century. From there, chess moved to Persia and into the Arab and Muslim world, where it followed the well-trod path into southern Europe via Moorish Spain. By the time of the late Middle Ages, it was a standard presence in the courts of Europe and appears regularly in manuscripts from the period. The modern game we know today appeared in Europe at the end of the 15th century, when the ranges of the queen and bishop were extended, making the game far more dynamic. Older and regional variants still existed, and there were a few minor rule standardizations, but for the most part, games played by the 18th century were identical to those played today. This rich history includes thousands of games from great masters of centuries past, with each move, each brilliancy, and each blunder perfectly preserved in chess notation, as if trapped in amber. The games are what matter most to serious players, but history and physical relics also play a role in the game's status. The 12th century Lewis chessmen, carved from walrus tusks, illuminated Persian illustrations from 1500 of players accompanying Rumi's poetry. The third book ever printed in English was Game and Play of the Chess, which came from the press of William Caxton himself in 1474. Napoleon Bonaparte's personal chess set. You start to see why chess fans resent it being called just a game. This global heritage is what makes chess unique as a cultural artifact, but the fact of its longevity and popularity doesn't explain it. The number of people who play chess regularly is impossible to know exactly, of course, but some of the more extensive surveys with modern sampling methods put the figure in the hundreds of millions. The game is popular on every continent, with regional concentrations from its traditional popularity in the form of Soviet and Soviet bloc countries, and from its recent boom in India, which is due largely to the successes of former world champion Vishwanathan Anand. My personal and entirely unscientific survey method is based on how often I am recognized in public when I travel, which I do most of the year. In the United States, where I now live in New York City, I can pass in anonymity for days at a time before being recognized, often by someone from Eastern Europe. For better or worse, chess champions can safely walk the streets of America without worrying about autograph hounds and paparazzi. Meanwhile, I was so mobbed by chess fans at my hotel during a lecture trip to New Delhi that the hotel had to have security escort me through. So I can't even imagine what it's like there for their national idol Anand. The Soviet heyday, when chess champions were met by cheering crowds at train stations and airports, survives today only in chess-mad Armenia, where the national team has brought home gold medals at an astounding rate for a country with a population of only three million people. And despite my own half-Armenian heritage, there is no genetic explanation necessary for this success. When a society emphasizes something, by custom or by mandate, results will follow, whether it's a state religion, a traditional art form, or chess. Does the why chess question find an answer in anything intrinsic to the game itself? Is there something uniquely attractive to chess's blend of strategic and tactical elements, its balance of preparation, inspiration, and determination? To be honest, I don't think so. It's true that the game has had the benefit of centuries of evolution, 
adapting to its surroundings like one of Darwin's finches. For example, the Romantic Renaissance players made the game far more lively, accelerating the game just as the world of ideas accelerated around it. And who is to say that the 8x8 chessboard isn't somehow more pleasing or accessible to the human mind than the 9x9 shogi board or the fathomless 19x19 grid of ghost stone? It's a diverting thought, but we don't really have to look much further than how the increasingly interconnected world of the Enlightenment led to the standardization of everything, from spelling to beer recipes to chess rules. Had a 10 by 10 board been in vogue around 1750, that's probably what we'd be playing with today.